Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another uh, 101 podcast session of history. Not just any history, but history that pertains to um, the Declaration of Independence, or that book that we've been talking about for the last few nights, Signing Their Lives Away. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, especially in the last... um, two nights, not just after the introduction from Tuesday, but the last two nights from yesterday being Massachusetts and then Wednesday, New Hampshire. We're now on to our third colony, which will we, which we will be discussing, um, and that colony is Rhode Island. Now, it is safe to say that Rhode Island is the smallest of all 50 states in the modern-day um, world that we live in, but It is safe to say that even at the time that our um, founders came together to sign the Declaration of Independence that Rhode Island was probably considered to be the smallest of the 13 colonies. Nonetheless, it didn't stop uh, the men who signed uh, the Declaration of Independence who came from Rhode Island to um, leave a um, lasting contribution. Well, how did... um, Rhode Island um, get its name. I I did some research, and I was um, actually um, intrigued by how uh, Rhode Island really came about. What I do know is that, um, based off of the information I obtained, is that uh, Rhode Island derived from a merger of four colonial settlements, being Newport, and there is Newport, Rhode Island, Portsmouth, Providence Plantation, and Warwick. There is a Warwick, Rhode Island. There is a Providence, Rhode Island, which is obviously is the um, capital of the uh, state, or what we know back then as the colony. And ironically, um, in England, there are villages or towns, cities, however you want to call them, that are uh, Warwick, uh, Portsmouth. I'm not sure about Newport, But it is very possible. So, um, is it safe to say that the English were the first to explore um, Rhode Island? That answer is actually false. Uh, Believe it or not, many years before the English arrived into the New World in the 17th century, during the 16th century, a man by the name of, uh, or I should say he was just no ordinary man, an Italian explorer. His name was Giovanni de Verrazzano. Around 1524, Mr. Verrazzano had explored um, an island near the mouth of Narragansett Bay. It, to him, it resembled an island that was known as the Island of Rhodes off the Greek coast. Now, when the English came uh, after the start of the 17th century, and established settlements in Rhode Island, they knew about what Mr. Verrazano had um, apparently seen in terms of um, an island that had resembled um, the one off the Greek coast being Rhodes, but they never were able to really get a 100% accurate answer. But nonetheless, I think this um, story has some good um, merit to it, And the island of Rhodes off the Greek coast must be just as small as 
Rhode Island was at the time of its at the time of its founding and how it stands today. Well, who founded, or should I say, which person established Rhode Island as a colony? Now listen, now listen very carefully, people. We're not talking multiple people or or a group. We're talking about one person. That answer is Roger Williams. Roger Williams, uh, believe it or not, started out in Massachusetts. He didn't leave on what we would call good terms from Massachusetts. I was shocked to find this out, that even in Massachusetts, of all places, there was a lot of uh, religious uh, conflict. But I do believe that none of the 13 colonies over time were 100% perfect when it came to um, religious toleration. I do know in Virginia that in the years after Virginia was established, if anyone wanted to practice Catholicism or let alone become a Presbyterian or a Baptist, in the case of one wanting to practice uh, the Catholic faith in Virginia, they were expelled from Virginia and were sent to Maryland. If you wanted to practice um, religious um, doctrine teachings that were affiliated not only with the, the Presbyterian Church, but also with Methodists, you were sent to North Carolina. I think it's safe to say, think about it, Maryland borders Virginia, North Carolina does. Of course, they didn't have the modern-day boundary lines like we know of today, but think about it, you're sending people north, that is north of Virginia, and just south of Virginia being North Carolina. But back to um, Roger Williams, he was a theologian, and he was forced out of Massachusetts due to uh, conflicts that involved religious and political differences, most notably um, religious um, reasons. So he established Rhode Island in the year 1636. And what's unique about the year 1636 is that around the same time, not long after he's... Um, forced out of Massachusetts, Massachusetts goes about f establishing the first educational institution of higher learning in the New World. Anybody take a guess at what that university is? Harvard in 1636. Now, believe it or not, Harvard will be the only institution of higher learning in the New World for close to 60 years until by the time 1693 rolls around and Virginia establishes the second institution of higher learning, being none other than William and Mary College, named after King William and Queen Mary. And yes, there is a county in Virginia known as um, King William, and then there is one called King and Queen. Makes practical sense. King William and King and Queen being King William and Queen Mary. Well, um, I also found uh, some other unique information on Roger Williams. The land he um, settled in present-day Rhode Island, or what becomes Rhode Island, he referred to it as Providence Plantations. This became a place of religious freedom where all were allowed. He settled at the top of Narragansett Bay. 
but basically Rhode Island was was in his eyes was to be seen as a um, a colony where um, people were welcomed. Uh, no matter what your faith was, you had a home. And as nice as that sounds, I'm sure that it it had it could not have been 100% perfect in a sense. We all like we all want to believe that no matter where you went in terms of settling in a colony, that you were going to be treated just the same as someone who probably, say, had a higher class status than you did. Not necessarily true. There were laws and rules on the books, even in the 17th century, as to who could hold public office, as or who could even um, own land and have a say in their government. Which collegiate university was the first in America to accept students regardless of religious affiliation? Well, I'll give you a hint. That school is in Rhode that school was established in Rhode Island. It's still in existence today. The answer is Brown University. And Brown University is one of nine Ivy League uh, colleges. Brown is uh, located in Providence. But I found this to be very interesting, but I, after having read information earlier before, earlier before getting to the part on um, which school was the first to accept students, regardless of religious affiliation, it probably should not have come as a, as a surprise that um, not just Brown University, but that this happening in Rhode Island, given that Roger Williams fought so hard to... Um, make that colony a place where religious freedom um, was welcome to everyone. In other words, everyone could experience freedom of religion without any uh, repercussions. But by 1764, 12 years before the 13 colonies officially declare their independence from England, only nine colleges are in existence. And these nine colleges... In, the, in colonial America were granted charters before the American Revolution broke out. Besides Brown, besides Brown University, Harvard, and William and & Mary, does anybody know what other six um, colleges of higher learning were in existence at that time? Here we go. Yale, Princeton, uh, but at one time Princeton was known as the College of New Jersey, King's College, which would later become Columbia, Penn, Dartmouth, Queen's College, which we now know as Rutgers. So it is safe to say uh, out of all the nine colleges at this time, there's only one that is located in what we would refer to as the South. That answer is William and Mary. The closest college north of William and Mary is Penn. So it is safe to say that um, it's safe to say that there are greater populations of people living up north, even at the time of the Declaration of Independence, than there were, in, say, in the South. But remember, Virginia is the largest of the thirteen colonies. And it is safe to say that her population would probably be greater than, say, Georgia and maybe to a degree with the Carolinas. 
But nonetheless, people remember in 1764, nine colleges in America, there's only one in the South, William and Mary. So, um, now we're going to talk about the men um, from Rhode Island who signed the Declaration of Independence. Does anyone, anybody want to take a guess as to how many men from the smallest of the 13 colonies came to Philadelphia to take up uh, the cause, not just for independence, but were willing to sign their lives away by signing the document? I'll give you a hint. The number is between one and four. The answer is two. Those two men are William Ellery and Stephen Hopkins. And since there's only two signers, we might as well talk about both of them. After having read this book last year and rereading about the two of them, they both uh, were very, um, well, um, how do I say it? They, they didn't come from super rich families, but they were educated well enough to have made a significant uh, contribution to their communities. We'll start with William Ellery. He was born in 1727. Now, you think about it, in 1727, the thought of anybody wanting to declare their independence from England would have been just totally unheard of. He was the son of a rich merchant, and Mr. Ellery himself was a Harvard graduate. Just because one went to an institution of higher learning didn't necessarily mean that they were striking it rich. In other words, yes, it was good that they went to an institution of higher learning like Harvard, but it didn't mean that whatever degree they earned right away was going to set them for life. So the, the irony with Mr. Ellery is that he struggled to support himself for most of his life, but no matter what he took on, he did succeed and he held a variety of positions such as being a merchant to becoming a customs collector, clerk of the General Assembly to clerk of the Court of Common Pleas. I find customs collector interesting in part because most notably at the time when the British have invaded Boston or they have uh, come to disrupt all the, um, un the civil unrest and all the co unnecessary quarreling going on, if there's one group of people that, that Bostonians just cannot um, tolerate, it is the customs collectors. I'm surprised that Mr. Ellery was not um, attacked or assaulted or tarred and feathered, let alone by his own people. But I think it is safe to say that he, um, throughout a great deal of his life, in no way expressed any true um, loyalty to the crown. So that could be a good sign of why he might have been spared. However, by the time he reaches the age of 40, he begins to study law. And this is something he had wanted to do all along, was to become a lawyer. Well, it is safe to say that having worked as a merchant, customs collector, clerk of the General Assembly, to clerk of the Court of Common Pleas, all of those experiences did pay off in the end by him becoming a lawyer. 
hey, it was never too late for him to chase his dreams. So more power to him to be able to have studied law, even if it meant doing so at age 40. And, and think about this. By the time he's 40 years old, we're looking at around the year 1767, given that he was born in 1727. So by the time he's studying law, Parliament has already passed those infamous Townshend duties, which uh, the, the Townshend Act, rather, which places duties on imports like lead, glass, tea, and that would probably give Mr. Ellery all the more fuel to uh, not just study the law, but to say, hey, this is unconstitutional. Why? Because Parliament never bothered to ask its colonists for consent. Now, did Mr. Ellery become appointed by um, the state legislature to uh, be chosen as a um, delegate to um, the Continental Congress? Actually, the answer is no. It turns out that he really became more of an accidental choice. How so when, when I say accidental choice? Well, the former governor, known uh, whose name was Samuel Ward, he was one of the first choices, and he was appointed. It turns out that by the time Mr. Ward arrives into Philadelphia, he contracts smallpox. And he get and his condition deteriorates so bad to where he dies after a few short days of having arrived into Philadelphia. Well, what do you know? As a result of Mr. Ward's tragic death, William Ellery becomes the replacement. So in a sense, had it not been for Mr. Uh, Ward's passing, William Ellery would never have made history by, uh, be, by becoming a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Well, he served in Congress, or shall I say in the Continental Congress, for eight to ten years, and he served on committees like mail routes, public accounts to army purchases. You know, for some of our signers, I don't know if they would have found these positions glamorous, but... Mr. Ellery himself did, and boy, did he make the most out of it. As they say, sometimes, you know, certain positions are not the most glamorous, but someone's got to fill them. Well, William Ellery filled them, and he sure, sir, he sure did serve as a solid, a solid asset to those uh, committees and to everyone else who was on them. Well, um... Mr. Ellery uh, died in 1820, and I and believe it or not, he outlived both of his wives. And it turns out that <laughs> through uh, two marriages, he um, had a total of uh, 16 children. That's a lot of mouths to feed, but we also should remember in his day and time, children did not... Um, usually make it past the age of 10. And if any child did, that was uh, considered to be very remarkable. So in the 18th century um, days of living, yes, it was very common for families to have 10 or 12 children and hope that that's maybe six would make it to adulthood. So uh, Mr. Ellery was one of three signers to live into their 90s.
and that is something very unheard of in 18th century times. Here is something very unique, one of the last things that really stood out the most about William Ellery. He had a granddaughter who married into the Sedgwick family. What makes the Sedgwick family so interesting is that a future relative whom, is, whom has had a successful Hollywood career, that name is none other than actress Kira Sedgwick, who, had, who was on a show for a number of years uh, called The Closer. It just so turns out that Kira Sedgwick is married, has been married to Kevin Bacon for over 30 years. And, of course, Kevin Bacon has been in a plethora of movies. If I had to pick one favorite movie of him, uh, it would have been none other than Animal House. Especially that scene where he, he and the other pledges from the Alpha Phi Omegas are um, having to, what do you call, assume the position... And Niedermeyer, or I should say uh, Doug Niedermeyer, hits him, on the, uh, hits him on the behind with a paddle, only for Kevin Bacon to say, Thank you, sir, may I have another? When I think of Kevin Bacon, I often think of Animal House in that, in that scene. But nonetheless, um, had this granddaughter of Mr. Ellery's not married into the Sedgwick family, there would be no Hollywood connection as we know today. So, um, that wraps it up for William Ellery. But nonetheless, um, there was probably a reason why he was chosen as that accidental um, member uh, to serve on behalf of the Continental Congress. Our next um, signer from Rhode Island is Stephen Hopkins. Stephen Hopkins was born in 1707. This would have made him the second oldest signer after Benjamin Franklin. So, um, Ben Franklin was 70 in the year 1776. Stephen Hopkins was 69. And uh, when I read about Stephen Hopkins, I was actually surprised to learn that... Um, for a number of years, I, I thought Ben Franklin was the only one who uh, stood out from the pack in terms of being much older than everyone else. But I was proven wrong when I found that to be uh, the case with Stephen Hopkins. Well, anyways, who is Mr. Hopkins? Well, he was a successful farmer and merchant who held every position of significance in Rhode Island. Uh, he served as a chief justice of the Superior Court. He helped establish the first public library in Providence. And he helped found the Providence Gazette and County Journal, which was a newspaper that um, did speak out against hostilities that um, Tories, or should I say the Loyalists, uh, practiced towards those who were the opposite. He served as governor 10 times in Rhode Island between 1755 and 1768. Now remember, in those days, you were elected probably to what you call one-year terms. When Patrick Henry became the first non-royal governor of Virginia in 1776, for example, 
he was elected to three one-year terms. And it's probably safe to say that you had one-year terms. Number one, um, it was, well, I wouldn't say so much number one. I think I know why they were one-year terms. They, our forefathers were afraid that if, if a governor was elected to serve a term of three or four years, that might have been seen as perhaps um, an excessive um, use of power, or should I say an excessive use of power that could be abused. So I think they were probably smart to do uh, what do you call one-year trials. Well, Mr. Hopkins became a delegate to the Continental Congress in 1774. And what makes him very unique is that he was one of the first uh, lawmakers, not just in Rhode Island, but in America, to introduce legislation outlawing slavery. Not just slavery, but the slave trade. So he was very essential to um, crafting legislation that prohibited the uh, slave trade in Rhode Island. But here's an interesting double-edged sword about Mr. Hopkins. He had two brothers that were very active in the slave trade business. So how is it that Mr. Hopkins, or should I say Stephen Hopkins, the opposite of his brothers, but yet he still has a a good friendship or, or a good relationship with them. Well, I did read where he worked um, part-time for his brothers in their shipping business, but I think it is fair to say that he probably knew where to draw the line as to, okay, I might not like the practice of it, but am I going to drag my brothers down to the point where I'm going to end up uh, humiliating them to where... My, my relationship with them no longer exists. So, you, you know, as I said before, even from uh, John Adams Under Fire, from Dan Abrams's book, this could be a good example right here of where there was some family dysfunction. But on a scale of one to five, how would you rate this level of dysfunction? Probably a one. Because it didn't stop Stephen Hopkins from... Um, from accomplishing everything that he had set his uh, mind to. Uh, Mr. Hopkins, um, according to John Adams, Mr. Hopkins had, um, had a very good sense of humor. He kept everyone together, and that probably is a good thing to know because I'm sure that there were plenty of moments when um, everyone came together in 1776 especially since every, you know, some people had met each other already, but there were a lot of people who had not met each other before. They might have heard about one another through a, a newspaper. But when they met for the first time in person, that must have been a true moment to behold. So it would have been like, say, Stephen Hopkins meeting um, Edward Rutledge of South Carolina for the first time. Well, uh, you know, Rhode Island, yes, is a small colony, but it sure has um, left a, a good legacy, not just in today's time, but, um, but during the time that Roger uh, Williams um, established the colony. If it hadn't been for Roger Williams, 
I'm not sure who would have been the first to have actually made Rhode Island an actual colony, but it is good to know that um, someone established that colony on the grounds of making it a safe religious haven for all sects. And And his history has shown us religion... While, yes, it's, it's important, it has also caused so many rifts, not just in families, but in communities. Uh, people have been expelled, uh, disowned, all in the name of religion. And as one, in, in uh, one book I read uh, from a, t- about Thomas Jefferson last year called uh, Jefferson's Creed, Jefferson himself saw firsthand what religion did to European countries in terms of warfare, bloodshed. That's why I am ever so thankful for why Thomas Jefferson went as far as he did as to establishing freedom of religion. Uh, Without freedom of religion, I can only imagine just how many more religious uh, persecutions there could have been in this country. Jefferson... It's interesting to note Thomas Jefferson, yes, grew up as a child um, being sworn to the Anglican Church or Church of England. That could be attributed in large part because of the Randolphs being such a prominent family. And anyone who was a prominent status in Virginia uh, was obliged to um, take up their allegiances with the Anglican Church. But not every... Uh, other colony in in um, the New World was um, wanting to support the Church of England, and I think it is fair to say that in New England, that while yes there were uh, Puritans in Massachusetts who wanted to reform the Church of England, I do believe it is safe to say that other colonies like New Hampshire, Rhode Island, uh, Connecticut, and perhaps New York. Or I mean, New York being more of a northern colony, but I think it is fair to say that for those uh, colonies, they were established on the grounds as uh, for religious uh, haven reasons. Well, um, I look forward to another upcoming podcast session here soon, and you know we've just finished um, three nights in a row of talking about. Um, uh, colonies. Uh, we've started from, We've started with New Hampshire. Last night was Massachusetts, and tonight was Rhode Island. If anyone were to ask me right now, um, who would you say has been your most favorite uh, of the forefathers to learn about that didn't receive a whole lot of um, recognition on the front cover of a book? I would have to say right now it's none other than Josiah Bartlett of New Hampshire. I find him to be very unique uh, in the sense that he was the first, he really was the first to do everything. He was the first to um, officially um, adopt the resolution on July 2nd, um, or should I say motioning the approval for the Declaration of Independence on July 2nd. He was the first to sign the document on uh, July 4th, other than John Hancock and his secretary, Josiah Bartlett was the first to do a number of things 
in New Hampshire alone. So, you know, everybody says George Washington was the first in the hearts of his fellow countrymen, and he was, and I would never question that. But in the eyes of New Hampshire men, who is the first in their hearts? And when it came to signing the Declaration of Independence to... Um, to motioning for its um, adoption of approval leading up to July 4th, it's none other than Josiah Bartlett. So it could be safe to say that Mr. Bartlett, in his own sense, is his own version of George Washington. But I do believe it's safe to say that a lot of other uh, signers of the Declaration of Independence, all of them bore some characteristic of one another um, to some of our uh, more famous signers, like Jefferson. Uh, I thought it was very neat uh, in last night's discussion that Jefferson had dubbed Sam Adams as a patriarch for uh, liberty. So I, I do believe that even with all their flaws, that whatever flaws existed, that all of, our, uh, all of the signers, and we're going to learn this as we continue to go along in this, uh, in this podcast series on um, the book Signing Their Lives Away. We're going to learn that all of our forefathers were very complementary of one another. In other words, they made sure to find something good about one another. And that's an, another prime example right there of, of where, hey, don't burn bridges. Even Because for one, if you live up north and you're working with someone down south, you're going to have to find a way to compromise on something that, say, may not be an issue in New Hampshire, but it's an issue in South Carolina. But at the end of the day, it's going to be an issue that's going to impact, it's going to impact everyone regardless of where they're coming from. So that wraps up tonight's podcast. And um, I look forward to getting another one um, discussed here soon. Take care for now. Good night.